A programming note, it's Crossing Broadcast, it's Monday. Kyle's not here. He's actually been suspended for a, uh, a show based on Twitter feedback. Of all the people who are upset about the way that he responded in the last show and tried to defend Mikel Bridges without acknowledging the fact that the Sixers trade was a good one. So uh, filling in for Kyle today is uh, Bob Wankel, who you have uh, heard and obviously subscribed to his other show, Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast, Bob can be found on Twitter at BW Crossing Broad Bob. We're going to get into uh, some Philly stuff today, and I think you're going to try to make the case that baseball is a sport that's actually worth watching, which I'm not so sure about. Uh, that will be a, a very difficult case to make, but I will try. I love baseball, but uh, it does have some problems, and uh, I've listened to hockey people over the years, people like yourself say, please like my sport, it's great. Uh, i got to be honest with you, baseball does have some issues, but uh, yeah, we'll get into it a little bit. So I was excited last night. I was seeing that you know the Phillies had been coming off of uh, two series victories, and they were about to sweep the Nationals. Everything was hunky dory. We saw Reese Hoskins hit a bomb early in the game to put them up two nil. Two. I'm in. I'm in World Cup mode to put them up two zero. And uh, it looked like everything was going well. They were finally back on Sunday night baseball, which has a totally different feel than the last time I remember watching it with uh, Joe Morgan and uh, what was the other guy's name? I should know this. Uh, was John Miller? John Miller, yeah. yeah, and Joe Morgan, yeah, yeah. They were the uh, the voices of I think ESPN, MLB, Two K Five is how I lovingly remember them. But uh, a very different setup. It was nice to see them actually on a national telecast on a Sunday night. There was there's a I guess something nice about that. But um, what should, went it, wrong? It shows you how long it's been since you've watched Sunday night baseball. Like there was this whole era after those two guys where the guy Dan Schulman was the announcer. Like that was like for five years. So you've probably been out of Sunday night baseball uh, as long as the Phillies have been. So it's it's been a while since they've been on. Um, it it's it's hard because you know you watch the Phillies on a night to night basis and things aren't always going to go your way. Uh, there's a lot to be encouraged about with this team. They're sitting there at 41 and 34. They're seven games over 500. They have the second spot of the wild card as we wake up this morning. And there are a lot of things to feel good about with this team. The starting pitching has been outstanding. Nick Pavetta, again, last night. It only lasted five innings, but he battled out of some tough spots there and gave the Phillies a chance to win that game. Um, and offensively, at the top of the lineup, things are starting to click a little bit. And so things are progressing in a lot of ways for this team. But the bullpen, again, uh, just absolutely crushed them last night. Three innings of work. Uh, six earned runs. They allowed nine hits, and they completely imploded and and just killed an opportunity for the Phillies to make a, an absolute statement on national television last night uh, and to sweep that series. But all in all, still a lot of positive things here, but you can't help but be annoyed by what you watched last night. So explain what the heck has happened to the bullpen, because I, I don't know how many people who listen to this show uh, have been actively involved and actively watching. The the one thing that it, it looks like has happened um, and that I know from a fantasy perspective is I started my fantasy season with, I think, six closers on my bench, and one of them was Hector Neris, who uh, I guess has recently been demoted and is, is dead to the world at this point. But like guys like Sir Anthony, who that every, everybody seems to be wanting to take over as the closer, it feels like there's now this uh, this divide between the fan base of the people who think that Sir Anthony should be the um, should be the closer, but then there are the others who say, well, you know, he might be the best reliever. So if you make him the closer, then that's all all kinds of uh, you know massive moments in games in seventh inning, eighth inning, if you need him, that you won't be using him. So where do where do you fall in this? 
there, there's several issues uh, with this bullpen, and um, I mean, I don't even know where you start. I, I guess if you want to just talk about Dominguez, Gabe Kapler has a very limited hand that he's playing with here. Um, he, Dominguez really up until this past week had been his, his only reliable reliever, and now he's even experiencing some issues. I mean, as good as he is, and uh, you talk about small sample sizes, he has a 5-4-0 ERA now in the month of June. Um, his whip is at 1.5. It, it has, he hasn't really been particularly good. I mean, he's nasty. Uh, within his appearances, he's, he's shown that ability, uh, but it, it has – in terms of consistency, left him a little bit uh, here lately. Um, he had the tough loss earlier this week against the Cardinals, and then last night obviously didn't go too well for him either. And so I'm a little bit concerned about Dominguez and the way that he's been used. I don't care really what his role is at this point, but I want to see a defined role. And I think that you're asking a lot for a kid that's been in the big leagues for two months basically to come in and pitch multiple innings uh, on several different occasions. He's your ninth inning guy. He's your seventh inning guy. He's your seventh and eighth inning guy. I think that it's just asking a lot. He's versatile. He came up through the minor leagues as a starter. He can handle the length, but I just think that from a mental standpoint and from a preparation standpoint, that is a big ask of a young guy like him. And I do think that you're starting to see a little bit of a, a negative impact from that usage. Um, he really is the one guy that comes out of there, though, and represents an opportunity to shut down an inning. And I understand why Gabe Kapler has leaned upon him so heavily because he has to when you look at the rest of this bullpen. But e even him now, he's starting to kind of spring some leaks, and, and there's a little bit of concern with that, I think. Um, so if it were me in a perfect world, he would be your ninth inning guy, but you need to have a competent setup man. Or in a perfect world, he's your seventh or eighth inning guy, but then you need to have a competent closer. And they don't have anybody. There's nobody on this roster currently that has shown a consistent ability to navigate the ninth inning. And, and that's really the issue. You have one decent bullpen piece out there and a bunch of guys that have really struggled to find it. And it's very hard to win baseball games that way. And so, you know, after these tough losses like the one they had last night, a lot of people want to criticize Gabe Kapler. Oh, he's shouldn't have walked Soto uh, to get to Murphy, and that, that was stupid. And, you know, why did they go to so-and-so reliever in the seventh? I mean, nobody's getting it done, and that's the bottom line. So you can criticize the manager all you want, but if the Phillies want to be serious about contending in the second half of the season, they have to. They have to go out and make a move to add what has been a mess of a bullpen. And I know that's a little bit of a long-winded answer, but just even when you look at Dominguez, it, it's it's – it's troubling. It's an issue, and it's it's wrecking what could be a, a team at this point that could be 11, 12 games over 500 potentially in first place. It is the thing holding them back right now. So Dominguez gave up what two runs last night? Took a loss. Correct. Um, it I guess over his last eight games, he's got he's got a six ERA after I guess his first 12 games. He had only given up two hits total. Um, no runs. So, yeah, it, it looks like, from a an outsider's perspective, it looks like he's uh, maybe gotten – the league has caught up to him a little bit. Um, the the issue, I guess, that I'm, I'm not totally certain about – so Gabe Kapler, right? Uh, it, it feels like no matter what the guy does, it's his fault and he's wrong. And maybe it's not a – maybe it's not the worst thing for a young team to have somebody that's constantly getting scrutinized. Like, it, at least in – the aftermath of blown bullpen games and when the Phillies were in a, a, a long stretch of just poor hitting, it never felt like anybody's calling out specific players onto the carpet. It always feels like it's Gabe's fault 
that Gabe can't do anything right, that Gabe is the one to blame for the relievers that he brings in or for the lineups that he's setting. And and it certainly feels like there's just no accountability for the players. It's a it's a very strange thing. It it's kind of reminiscent, I would say, of like what it it first seemed like when Charlie Manuel was was brought in as manager. It was like he was this bumbling southern hick, and anything that went right was um, in spite of him, and anything that went wrong was because of him. Like, is is that how you kind of view the way that fans are treating Kapler at this point? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, if you would have asked pretty much any Phillies fan. If you wake up on the morning of what is it today, June twenty fifth, June twenty fifth, and the Phillies yeah, had a June go, uh, yeah, and we're here at the end of June, and this team is in the playoffs. If the season ended today, and I think that most fans would say, well, if that's the case, then the manager's doing a hell of a job. And I don't know if this is a product of baseball. I mean, if you go back through little league. Everyone hates the coach. Uh, you should have sent him from third base on that base hit, or you know, you should have left my kid in a little bit longer. And I think that that's a product of people watch the Phillies a couple of times a week, and they think they know how to coach a baseball team. Uh, I can speak to that a little bit. I have experience in that realm. Um, I, I will say, I think that it's partly him. I think that people understand that this team is in a good spot overall, but when you have this guy that's a little bit uh, outside of what you are accustomed to seeing, and, and this town is a little bit in the Stone Ages when it comes to analytics and, and doing things the way that the Phillies do them now, um, the, the Phillies were so far behind the curve, and I think that this is just a, a new age. It's a different way to go about things, and people look at Gabe Kapler and they say, one of the first criticisms you hear is, well, did the computer tell you to do that one, Gabe? You know, like that type of stuff when you hear people call in and bash him on the radio. I, I think it's just a matter of, of who he is and the way that he speaks and the way that he goes about things. I think he makes himself an easy target. I, I think it's completely unfair. Um, I don't, Anthony and I get into uh, conversations on Gabe Kapler all the time on Crossed Up, and I, I tend to like him. Uh, I, I tr- tend to defend him in most cases. I was going to say, who, who do you tend to like, <laughs> yeah, Anthony or Gabe? Yeah, I, I tend to defend Gabe Kapler, and I, I like Anthony too, but I think it's a thing where people just don't like the the philosophy, and so they are cri- quick to criticize him when, when things don't go well. It, it absolutely, in most cases, is the player's fault. I mean, if you go to a bullpen and there are four or five guys simultaneously that cannot get it done – it doesn't matter if you go lefty, righty, seventh, eighth. You can mix and match all you want. Nobody's doing their job out there. I mean, Eddie Bray Ramos last night uh, gave up a run in the sixth inning, uh, and that was the first time he had been uh, checked for a run, I think, since like mid-May. So, I mean, he's been really good. It's been like 15 games since he allowed a run. But other than him, they've had just huge issues across the board. So when you're talking about going to Austin Davis versus Adam Morgan versus – Hector Neris, who isn't even here anymore, versus Yaxel Rios. I mean, what are we talking about here? You know, it, to me, the criticism at this point, and it's not entirely fair to do this either, but if you really want to blame somebody, if you need to blame somebody to feel better about yourself after games like this, I, I think you have to start looking at the general manager, one, because he constructed this bullpen, and two, because he hasn't done anything to fix it yet. And uh, as this team gets into July, that's going to have to happen. Yeah, so if, if they're hoping to pursue a wild card, then like at, at what point do do we have to start worrying about, you know, in order to fill some of those holes and to fix some of this poor roster construction, at what point does Clintac or whoever decide that it's time to start parting with prospects? And like I, I don't know if there's anybody on the roster right now who's attractive enough and is also somebody that you're willing to part with, but like 
Isn't this a thing where like a Cesar Hernandez who I my my issue I guess going into the season has just been the fact that the Phillies are playing so many young guys out of position. I mean, Hoskins is playing the outfield when he should be playing first base. Kingery's been playing all over God's creation when he should be a second baseman. Like, I, I know that they had had conversations over the summer around the time that Freddie Galvis was traded about getting rid of Cesar Hernandez as well. And Cesar seems like a nice enough player, but to me, he's not a, a guy that you should be prioritizing over, you know, your younger core. I mean, if nobody expected this team, I, I think, to uh, be competing for a wild card this season. And if you're if you're already ahead of the curve, then like a guy like Hernandez could probably fit fetch you at least some kind of value on the on the uh, the trade market. I don't know what Michael Franco's uh, value is at this point. I mean, Minimal. to me, when I watch him, Minimal. when I when I watch Franco play, when I watch him at the plate swinging away, I mean, he's essentially what happens if you take. Uh, Manny Ramirez and the Monstars show up and take all the talent. I mean, that's that to me. Every time I watch him swing, like, that's that's what I think. And it, I mean, I, I I guess bullpen and and you know solid relievers are going to be of the utmost importance and and of the highest value on the trade market. So I I don't know at what point do you think it's worth you know gutting some of your farm system in order to kind of fix Clentac's error in roster construction or. Do you just kind of write it out this season, knowing that you're playing with house money at any given point? Well, uh, you know, with Cesar Hernandez, in a perfect world, if Scott Kingery came up and he was hitting 280 right now and showing you all the things that we thought he would be uh, coming into the season, uh, that would be one thing. If Michael Franco had stabilized at third base and kind of cashed in on some of the talent that we thought that he had, uh, you know, after two rough years, that would be one thing. If J.P. Crawford had developed the way that we had hoped he would, um, you're talking about a guy that's hovering around 200 batting average right now. I know he gets on base. I know he works counts, and that's all fine and well. But offensively, he has not been what the Phillies had hoped he would be. They have questions in the infield, and Cesar Hernandez is arguably their best, maybe their second-best infielder right now, depending on how much you like Carlos Santana, who's been really good since May 1st. He got off to a tough start this season, but he's been outstanding for them over the last six, seven weeks. So when you look at it, if you're trying to be a contender and you want to win this season, it's it's virtually impossible, I think, at this point to move Hernandez. I was surprised that they came into the season with him. I did think he was going to be traded over the winter, uh, but they, they didn't go that route. They opted to keep him. They must not have liked what they they could have gotten in return for him. You still look at him. He's 28 years old. They have him through 2020. There's no need to move him, uh, but he's probably the most attractive trade option that they have at this point. Um, I, it, there's just so many different things going on right now. You talked about Michael Franco, and he just he just isn't. It's like he's just good. always yeah yeah. I mean, to, to be completely fair, he's just not that good, and it's a, a ton of ground balls. He f- sees more sliders than anybody in Major League Baseball. He still has not made a consistent adjustment to how pitchers attack him. There's huge holes in his swing, and I mean, he, he puts the ball in play, but it's often it's just absolutely weak contact. And he does things. He has games. He shows flashes, but there's just not a consistent ability. So for me, in terms of talking about trading prospects and and how you kind of leverage this thing out moving forward, I wouldn't be trading franchise-altering prospects to go for it this season. If there are moves out there that you can make in order to, one, shore up this bullpen, 
without really crushing yourself at the major league level, that's something that I would explore. And I think that that is feasible. I think this can be done. And I think that the Phillies have to make a move uh, to add at third base. And one other issue that you're going to see, and thank God, uh, thank God, though he's struggling, Michael, Mike Alfranco isn't seriously hurt after last night. I mean, if, if you saw the game, he, he ran through first base and he slipped on the back of the bag and it looked like he had blown up his Achilles was the first thing that I had thought the way he went to the ground. And I mean, this team is absolutely razor thin in terms of its infield depth. It's not a very deep roster. So the Phillies cannot afford, and I mean, a lot of teams can't afford big injuries to to primary players, but the Phillies cannot afford another injury to an infielder with JP Crawford already out. I mean, they just have no depth organizationally. And, and so it's tough. I mean, I think that the starting pitching and I think that these offensive pieces in a somewhat weak National League can get them into the postseason with a couple fixes. I think that that's a realistic expectation. I'm not telling you that they're going to win 90-95 games. I don't think they're going to win the NL East. At the end of the day, I still expect the Nationals to do that, uh, although they've certainly had their share of struggles. But I would think that you should make a move to try to reach the postseason, arrive ahead of schedule, if you can, so long as you're not trading, you know, one of your top two, three prospects to do it. So I want to look ahead really quick to uh, free agency, which is certainly a long way away. Um, it had gone back and forth, and obviously it's it's been at least, I would say, a, a hot button enough issue whenever the Phillies come up on Sports Talk Radio or, or when uh, it seems like even the casual fan is kind of back in on this team about whether or not to make a trade for Manny Machado, which um, I'm going to hold off my my very uh, uh, hot take on that. Um, when, when we kind of look at, at Machado, like certainly he, he would speed up the timeline on things, right? He would certainly make you an immediate contender, but the notion of trading top prospects for a guy to be here for a few months without having any kind of an extension in place would seem suicidal at best. Um, when you look to the offseason, though, the two biggest free agents, I guess, that anybody had thought, at least over the course of the last two years, that the Phillies maybe would, you know, turn their attention to would be Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. Well, Harper's hitting what two twelve, and I, I I can't explain what happened to him because I, I haven't watched enough baseball. You do. What what's happened to Bryce Harper? And like, do you see that as as something that's going to, you know, negatively affect his market value, or is it something where he and his agent are going to hold out? saying that, you know, he's been such a, such a successful player to this point that, you know, he can have a down season. Uh, as far as Harper goes, uh, I think that – I don't think teams are going to be scared off by what you're seeing. Uh, the OPS is still in the mid-800s. The batting average is down. Uh, I think what you're seeing a lot with him is the shift. I, I You know, I don't want to oversimplify this, but it, I think that that has played a, a huge part in it. Um, I think that he's really struggled uh, deeper in counts. I think he's pressing a little bit. I think that several guys on that Nationals offense right now are struggling. And I think that the pressure is sort of mounted on him. Now, even coming into last night, I mean, the guy still has 19 home runs. He still has elite power. Uh, slugging percentage is still very solid. It, it, he is a – to me, if you you don't like Bryce Harper as a, as a player, you, you don't like the way that he carries himself or if there's something about him that annoys you, that's that's fine. Um, I would I would still gamble on him. I, I think that he's going to be worth what he gets paid. Um, and, and I know that that sounds crazy because you hear $400 million, $500 million. I don't know that he's worth that necessarily, but I do think that he is, outside of Machado, 
he I guess I'm trying to figure out how I want to say this. I think that he's worth it. I think that he's a guy that can come in and alter a franchise. And I, I think that he's a guy that shifts the overall makeup of a team. And I think that he's a guy that in, in certain situations is going to be a championship-level player. I, I heard that there was an anonymous GM that had criticized him um, in the media a couple weeks ago saying that he's a loser. He's not a winning player. I think that that's a mischaracterization. And I also think it's entirely unfair. If you watch the game last night, he killed the Phillies. Uh, you know, two doubles and then the uh, a big-time base hit late in that game. And you see the talent. I just think it's a matter of time. I don't know that he's going to get back to 270, 280 this season, but I do think the batting average is going to come up. I, I expect him to have an OPS near 900 by the end of the season. And uh, the guy's going to hit 40, 45 home runs in a down year. So I'll take that if, if that's the down year. Um, as far as Manny Machado goes, he is the perfect free agent. Uh, he is the perfect fit on this team. Uh, I know that he wants to play shortstop. He's not a particularly good defensive shortstop. Uh, I, would, I would argue that he might be below league average. Um, in terms of defensive run save, I believe it's like negative 16. That's not good. Uh, I, I would prefer to see him as a third baseman, but when you look at what he brings to the table offensively, uh, I'd be willing to deal with some shaky defense. You're getting that anyway right now in Scott Kingery, who's hitting, what, 222, 223 this morning. So, Manny Machado makes all the sense in the world, uh, and that would be the guy I would love to go see them get at the end of the season. I would not make that deal for him right now for the reasons that you said. It makes sense for Machado to say that he wants to play short because certainly a shortstop is more valuable on the free agent market. Like I don't, I don't know. Maybe there's a chance that he's saying he wants to play shortstop just so he gets more money, and then they come into the spring training and he says, "Yeah, it's fine. I'm I'm a good third baseman. I'll I'll go back." Yeah, I mean, I think it's there's varying degrees to how it's like much posturing. He, I don't know that we know that he's dead set on playing shortstop. He's expressed it verbally in the past, but exactly. You know, he gets the contract. He's paid the way that he wants to be paid, and he says, okay, use me how you want to. I, I, I think that that's realistic. That could happen. What are the odds? I, I've been seeing the name Adrian Beltre floated out there again, um, that the Rangers have decided to make him available. And to me, like, Beltre's a guy that I think got away from the Phillies. Was it back in, like... I'm trying to remember who it was they signed over him. It was like 2011, I think. There was somebody who... Uh, I'm like trying to figure it out now. There was a time that Adrian Beltre had hit free agency, and the Phillies certainly needed a third baseman. And to me, he was the perfect fit. Like He was a right-handed bat. He could mash. He could you know, hit for, for massive power, especially Citizens Bank Park. Like, to me, that was a perfect marriage. And they never went after him. And it was it was a strange thing, at least. you know That was, I think, back when I was you know, still actively involved and actively engaged in following the Phillies free agent or their, their uh, minor league system. And, and I was, you know, hell bent on seeing them go out and acquire, you know, bats that I thought they needed. And Beltre seems like a guy who, you know, can still hit for power. And he's somebody who could change the dynamic of the lineup, at least in the short term. I think um, he's a free agent after this year. If I remember correctly, he signed a two year extension in 2016 so yeah I guess his contract runs out at the end of the year to me he seems like a guy who you know as long as you're not having to part with your top prospects like he makes a lot of sense to uh to at least get in conversations with Texas about he shouldn't cost a ton and he's having a good season he's hitting what 314 uh OPS over 800 he I think is a a very reasonable fit for this team um I wouldn't go out and, and try to get a guy like Manny Machado only in the sense that there's no way that he's going to pass up free agency. There's just no way that he's going to sign a deal ahead of this winner. It's not going to happen. When you look at Beltre, though, uh, a quality right-handed bat, not a ton of pop anymore. Uh, He only has four home runs this season. He's not going to hit for a ton of power, but 
he's a professional hitter. He works counts. He knows what he's doing. Uh, and I think he would complement this team nicely. It would be a significant upgrade over what they have at third base right now. That's for sure. Um, by all accounts, he's a good clubhouse guy. And I think that that matters a little bit. You know, you hear these things and you, you, they tend to sound cliche often. But when you have a young team like this uh, that's still trying to find its way, uh, I do think that a guy like Adrian Beltre, who's been around for a long time and done it at a very you know, high level of play for a very long time, I think it's, it's a good move. It would make a lot of sense. A guy like Mike Moustak is same thing. Kansas City Royals third baseman. Someone else that the Phillies, I think, have been linked to throughout the last month or so, and he makes a lot of sense as well. A guy who will also be a free agent at the end of the season. The Royals probably won't retain him. So that's an avenue that they could explore as well. There are guys out there. They're, the Phillies are primed to make a move. They have the prospects, both elite level and mid-tier prospects, to do a deal like this. They certainly have the payroll flexibility and then some to do a deal like this. And really, when you look at the contenders in baseball, and this is the biggest factor, there are not a lot of teams that need third basemen. And so if you're a team like the Rangers, a team like the Royals, looking to sell off pieces and build and reshape your, your minor league system, and you're looking to try to add prospects that way, the Phillies are the one team that have that absolute need for a third baseman and so I think that that makes them the front runners to go out and acquire one uh, so I would expect that move I think that that's something that we will see in the next four weeks so long as they don't completely fall off a cliff uh, you know as they get into July which they shouldn't because when once you get past the Yankees this week and then the four game set with the Nationals at home this weekend that schedule finally after four or five weeks of just absolutely brutal strength of schedule, it starts to weaken a little bit. And so I think this team is a series or two away from, from having survived a very rough stretch. All right, so I'm going to blindside you with this, but sure. I, I want to see where you're, where you're at. So to me, Texas seems like they might be the best trade partner. Um, they've also made other you know key cogs available on, on their team, and they're certainly guys that would help the Phillies. Cole Hamels, of course, uh, free agent at the end of the year. There have been murmurs in the past that the Phillies might be interested in trying to acquire Cole. Uh, if not in the trade market, then you know in, in free agency to come back, solidify the rotation a bit, especially if you think that you're going to be making a run towards a wild card. Uh, Cole's not the same uh, ace-level pitcher that he was you know, three, four years ago, but he's not having the worst season in the world. Uh, certainly coming back to a, um, a friendly environment like Citizens Bank Park, coming back to a fan base that absolutely loves and adores him. Uh, would likely work out somewhat well. Uh, former Philly Jake Diekman has been made available, as has uh, the Rangers' closer, uh, what's this, Keon? Key, is it Keon? Is it Keon? Kayla? Um, who's only 25. He's got two years left of arbitration. I mean, to me, if, if you add Beltre in there, you've got two relievers, a starter, and a third baseman that are all being made available by the Rangers. And assuming they don't want, like, Sixto Sanchez back, I mean, there there should be... I would think that if you're looking to try to solidify your chances of making a wild card run and acquiring any two of those players could probably, you know, fill up the or patch the holes that you have currently on this roster. I'm guessing that Kayla would have the highest value as a, a younger player and, you know, because he is the start or the uh, the closer. But I don't know, is if if you're the Phillies, like, do you consider parting with like a uh, Mickey Moniak, like, does he have any value at this point, or does or is his value too high, too low? Like, do you look at a Jojo Romero? Like, you're not going to get rid of Sixto, so Sixto's off the table, right? Because you're not you're not trying to fight for the division lead right now. I mean, a wild card is fine, 
and you can probably you know solidify your roster in free agency uh, this offseason. So you know, do you make a do you make a move? Like, do you get rid of uh, an Adonis Medina? Like, do do we start selling off single A kids that look like they have a lot of promise, or is this just a situation where you think they kind of ride it out? I wouldn't trade Sixto Sanchez unless you're getting back an elite level talent like Manny Machado and know that you have him long term. So the only way that I'm parting with him is if I know that I'm getting back a guy that is going to be an organizational difference maker. I don't foresee that deal happening. I don't think that Sixto Sanchez is going anywhere. Um, Cole Hamels, let me just ask you something conceptually from from a conceptual standpoint. Do you when you move on from an era, do you want to make a clear break from it or do you do you say, oh, well, you know, it, it makes some sense. Let's bring this guy back. I mean, when it comes or, to Cole Hamels, do you, do you, like my thing is, does Cole Hamels make sense? Yes, because he's a guy that has postseason experience. He's pitched at a high level in the postseason. This is, a, though it is a, a very good rotation and it's performed very well through the first half of this season, outside of Jake Arrieta, there's not a lot of experience. So the idea of pairing Hamels and Arrieta with some of these younger, uh, more intriguing arms – it would really balance out this rotation. They could use a left-handed starter. I, I'm not as – I don't think that's as big of a deal as other people do, but Cole Hamels makes a lot of sense, and he has performed fairly well this season. You know, his numbers are not that far outside of his career averages. So he does make some sense. I, I just look at it and go, I want to be done with the 08 to 2011 era. I, I Wow. Like, I do. I, I have no interest in, in going back down that road. I love Cole Hamels. I know that this probably makes me sound like an idiot, and I could probably catch some crap for this, but like, I don't really want to go back down that road. It's a new time, and I'd, I'd like to just kind of continue down that path. That's where I'm coming from on Cole Hamels. So this is, I, I guess, uh, the way that I'd put it. So I, I'm obviously a Flyers fan, so uh, I guess I have a hard time letting go of the past, although I, I constantly hammer on the team for doing that. So um I, I think if it were a situation where Hamels has like a five ERA, then like, yeah, you certainly don't have any reason to bring him back. But he's got a three four one ERA. And while the win loss, which, you know, I, I guess some it's people irrelevant. still put a lot of it's stock totally into. Irrelevant. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like win loss, he's he's four and six, but he's got a three four one ERA. Um, he looks overall like his stats aren't the worst thing in the world. Um, you know, when I when I look at it, it's not like you're bringing back an old Chase Utley. Like you're you're potentially bringing back um, a uh, Cole Hamels that could, you know, I think a lot of this younger rotation and a lot of the younger players in the locker room could learn from. You're bringing back probably the only guy who was on that team who's doing anything of of substance, right? Like there, I, I guess there's a time that it's it's the right time to uh, break up eras and and like I guess to your point, kind of move on and and flip the page. But if Hamels is out there and he doesn't cost that much, then then to me it would be kind of stupid not to consider bringing him back yeah he knows how to he knows how to perform in this city which is you know one of the the variables that you just don't know when you go out to acquire a guy in a trade or in free agency you don't know how they're going to react to the philadelphia crowd and there's a lot to do with that here's the bigger like i guess like the macro perspective on why i think they should consider it when you talk to a casual phillies fan right now and we know that attendance is down across major league baseball um as a whole if you talk to a casual fan right now and say, name me three pitchers in this rotation, you might get Nola, right? Maybe, maybe somebody has seen Pavetta have a, you know, a, a decent start on the local news 
and it's been recent enough where they can say Pavetta. Or somebody says, oh, is that Velasquez guy who should be the closer? Is, is he still a starter? If you bring Cole Hamels back, this Phillies team that right now, throughout this season, is averaging 24,714 people in attendance per game. I mean, that's like just around half capacity. Yeah, it's 12th I mean, if you in think, the National League. Yeah, I mean, if you think about what this team was at its height and when they had the sellout streak, you were packing, what, 48,000 people into Citizens Bank Park, maybe more with staying room only? I mean, for you to only have 24,000, you know, just south of 25,000 people in the seats per game, I know that John Middleton has deep pockets, and I know that this ownership group, you know, says they're going to do whatever's best for the franchise, but, like, ultimately, you know, you can have all the money in the world, but you want to fill those seats. You get Cole Hamels back in here, and every five days or whatever, uh, every however many starts, you know, between home and, and road and everything, if you get Cole Hamels in here for, like, what, six, seven, eight starts to finish out the year, I mean, to me, that makes sense. From a, from a marketing perspective, you're bringing back a guy from the glory days. You're bringing back a, a name that um, would certainly kind of make the team relevant again or at least create some buzz i mean for them to be in the position that they're in with the record they have and knowing that they're chasing a wild card and to still see how few people are showing up uh to phillies games like it it's it strikes me as though they don't have to make a desperate move but doing something to rekindle that old flame and get some casual fans back out to get some families out uh to me it, it makes all the sense in the world like but again i guess it comes down to value it comes down to what Texas would want for him. You're totally right. I mean, you make great points. Cole Hamels, the player, makes sense on this team. From a marketing standpoint, it makes a ton of sense. The the attendance has been terrible. Uh, This week should be really interesting with the attendance, by the way, with the three games against the Yankees and the National Series. I think that this is going to let you know. I mean, if they can't fill it up this week, then they're not going to fill it up this season as it is. Um, So it will be interesting to see how that kind of plays out. I expect that park to be jumping this week, but we'll we'll see. it does. It makes a lot of sense that way. I The only thing I guess that, that I would say would be an impediment to that happening is that they have other needs that are greater. So, yeah, A, what do they want to part with? But, B, they're probably going to have to part with some stuff to, to obviously strengthen the bullpen, and I still think the third base is the bigger issue, the bigger concern. So I think that at w- what point, how many trades can you make for a team that probably isn't a championship-level contender at this point so that's really what it's going to come down to but if if Texas is reasonable with it the Phillies probably should look at him uh, I don't it, it's it's nothing against Cole Hamels I think he's great uh he does make sense it would fill the stands in a lot of ways it, it kind of almost sounds like the perfect situation in the last two starts he's been spectacular he's only given up one run, uh, earned run over his last two starts 13 strikeouts and 13 innings the performance the, the level of performance is still there and he would be a difference maker for this team I just don't know. I mean, if, if you don't want to trade anybody at the major league level, how many prospects are you willing to part with to go for it in 2018 if you want to shore up third base, if you want to shore up the bullpen, if you want to add to your rotation? And that's, what, that's really the question the Phillies are going to have to answer. How aggressive do they want to be? And I think that that's just really what it comes down to. All right, so let's go back over some of the stuff that you and I did for the site uh, this past weekend. Uh, I guess we'll go back, I, I guess, as far back as, uh, as Friday because there were a few interesting things. Um, that have happened. Um, I did a, a write-up where it was just uh, the images of watching the Sixers broadcast team react to the uh, Mikel Bridges trade. And um, if you haven't seen the video, you should go go on to the website and check this thing out. Um, Brian Seltzer is hosting um, with Penn head coach Steve Donahue and the uh, Sixers radio voice Tom McGinnis. They're sitting there, and, and McGinnis is in the middle of waxing poetic about Mikel Bridges and 
And uh, Brian Seltzer brings up the fact that his mom is such a nice lady and, you know, they t- she takes care of however many hundreds or thousands of people with the with the team and how excellent she is. And I mean, they're they're just going all in. And then in the midst of a Tom McGinnis um, uh, little diatribe, they get to uh, Seltzer kind of holding his finger up and he's like, hey, uh, Zaire Smith was just drafted by Phoenix. And I guess they've been doing that for every draft pick that came across. They were just kind of saying, hey, by the way, this just happened. And within like six seconds of him doing that, there's a, a beautiful moment that I, I captured in, a, in a, uh, a screenshot of Seltzer and McGinnis looking at each other like they just both got caught with their hands in the cookie jar. And it's just this shock that sweeps across them. McGinnis just kind of uh, is beside himself, can't believe it happens. And then Brian Seltzer is like, well, you know, it's not a, it, it's not necessarily official. It's just, it's just something that we're hearing. And then uh, he goes, well, it, it, I, I guess it, it does sound like this is actually, this is actually happening. And you just watch Tom McGinnis go from resignation and frustration to, uh, I'll tell you what, man, he's, he's a great kid. He came in here wearing his yellow sneakers and, uh, and it's just like, I, I can't imagine how well you have to do your job in order for you to, to go from, you know, waxing poetic about a kid, loving him, talking about his mom, uh, to getting absolutely blindsided and, and the gut punch, and then immediately have a uh, story ready to go about the uh, the kid you just traded for and his yellow sneakers. Uh, do you think you could pull that one off? I know I couldn't. I don't think so, but, you know, you're, you're a teacher, right? So you do that all the time. You kind of just have to go up there and you just you smile and you, you send the message. No matter what's going on, you still have to deliver that message. So, I mean, it's one of these things where these guys obviously prepare for all scenarios. They knew that Zaire Smith was an, was an obvious potential pick. They knew that Bridges was a potential pick, and so they prepped themselves, and they go, okay, that's devastating for that kid. I'm sure that that's terrible, and we just spent 10 minutes talking about how great of an addition he's going to be, and then you just have to pivot out of it, do a 180, and, and, and continue on. It's a tough situation. I listened to the podcast with you and Kyle last week uh, that you released on Friday and go back and forth, and, and my opinion of it is just that I don't think you can fairly evaluate this until you get through the free agency period. Uh, I think that there's just so many so many balls still up in the air. There's still so many variables to this. How can you how can you actually assess with any certainty at this point what happened on draft night until you see the rest of the dominoes fall? And that's just maybe that's because I'm not as dialed in with the Sixers. Maybe that's because I don't live and die by every move that they make, like some of the guys in our Slack do, and and how you you do. And I mean, I, and that's awesome. I, I just look at it and I think that this is one situation where I can be rational for a change because God knows when it comes to the Phillies and Eagles that I'm not. I just look at it and go, I think we just have to wait and see, but. From an actual human element, I think that Mikel Bridges is going to be fine. I don't think he's absolutely crushed. Uh, he's still going to play in the NBA and has a chance to be very successful and make a lot of money, so he'll be all right. But that night, I, I did feel for the kid. I certainly felt for his mother, and it was a bad situation to put pretty much everybody into. It was ice cold. Yeah, so uh, I, I'm. I, a lot of times people ask, or at least friends, friends will ask, you know, is it is your Slack chat always unanimous about the way that they, they feel about the Sixers? And I don't think anything could be like farther from the truth, right? Oh like God. you, you live it. Uh, there, there's constantly a divide that exists between, um, the people who, uh, will remain anonymous who, uh, no matter what defend the team and they, they never, ever, ever can find a negative about the Sixers. Uh, they might hate something initially 
And then within 10 minutes, they've talked themselves into, you know, how it's the best thing ever. And Very how, resilient. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's, it's like the puke and rally guy, uh, <laughs> the puke and rally friend in college. Um, so we've got that. And then we have like the, the ever cynicist uh, or the ever cynic who kind of sits in the corner and says, yeah, well, you know, um, the coach is, is a disaster and you've got, you wasted a number one pick on a kid who can't shoot. And then you've also got Ben Simmons. Um, so I, I, I don't know, like when, when I kind of look at it, I'm always thinking, man, you know, the, one of the people who's so predominant on the site and, you know, in Slack, who just doesn't seem to, uh, get involved either way is you. And then we look at the draft predictions post that, that, uh, we put together and you're, I think, the only one who said Zaire Smith was going to end up being the pick. So in a way, you were right. And so I don't, I don't know how to feel about that. The guy who, you know, while the, while the Sixers were in a playoff hunt and while the Sixers were in the middle of a playoff series, we were all, you know, cursing at each other back and forth in Slack. And I and go, you poke uh, your, tough one. <laughs> yeah, and, and you poke your head and you're like, man, I'm going to tell you something. I, I don't know if this bullpen's going to be able to hold up. We're like, what bullpen? There's no bullpen in basketball. What are you talking? You're like, no, I'm, I'm watching this Phillies game right now. Why are you watching the Phillies? The Sixers are in the playoffs. What is wrong with you? I mean, I got I think a job that, to do, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess that kind of tells everybody, you know, Nobody's all, paying the, me all to they need about to know the about the Sixers. You. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like one of those things. I, I pay attention to it. I look at it and I just don't, I don't know. I mean, I just I read what I read. I guess I happened to read the right article uh, that night, and I just chimed in. You like that how I did it, though. You guys are going crazy, and I'm like, I'm staying out of slack tonight. I want nothing to do with this. And then after they make the pick, I go, hey, hey, Russ, did, did I get the pick right? And you're like, <sighs> shut up. <laughs> and then I just ducked out. So And it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. The The number one feedback that I've I've seen on Twitter from that episode was people being mad about Kyle defending Mikel Bridges and and being you know really upset that they got rid of the Villanova kid for like the first fifteen minutes of the show, and people saying like oh I I tuned out I got 10, 15 minutes in I had to go and like that was it and I was like well the unfortunate thing is like he stopped being the uh, the ardent Villanova supporter and uh, defender of all things Mikel he he kind of came off to me like a scorned lover at one point and I'm like after fifteen minutes in like it opened up and we actually had a, a logical conversation but like. We had a whole thing uh, before we hit record on, uh, I guess it was Friday, where he and I had this like really awful back and forth where it felt like this like stupid petty first take thing. And I'm like, dude, we, we can't have a show like this. Like, it's going to be so bad. So I think we got a lot of that out of our systems. But I think he was just it was it was still too close to what had happened uh, the night before. And it, it was it was a little bit hard for him to, to recover. It's I think like the old like, point, I'm not angry. I'm just hurt. I think yeah. that, that was the. I think that's where he was coming from. Yeah, it, yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. So he, uh, he's not suspended. I said that at the top of the show. He's on vacation, uh, which I, you know, if anybody's listening to this uh, who also works for the site, um, I, there hasn't actually been an announcement that he's on vacation. So they might have just learned it through the show. So that's fun. Um, I guess while we're on the Sixers, just really briefly. So um, this had come up a couple weeks ago that uh, Markel Fultz is working with uh, NBA guru. Uh, training guru Drew Hanlon and Fultz has been working with him on his shot and Hanlon's a guy who had worked previously with Joel Embiid and Justin Anderson of the Sixers so he's he's spent plenty of time working with Sixers players he's helped Bradley Beal refine his shot he helped Jason Tatum in the uh, the transition from college to the NBA which certainly worked out um, he's been working with Mo Bamba who um, you know was a top prospect in this past draft and by virtue of the work that he had done with Embiid and I guess with Justin Anderson, 
um, Hanlon and Fultz got hooked up together and um, Hanlon went on to a show called Talking Schmidt, which I've never heard of, but it's a pretty catchy name for a podcast, I guess. And he was the first person that it seems like was in the inner circle where somebody who's worked directly with Fultz who admitted publicly that Fultz had the yips. I mean, he said nothing about, you know, he, well, he hurt his shoulder last year and, you know, there was a lot that went with that. I mean, he, he very clearly said that Fultz had one of the most publicly documented case of the yips in basketball in, in recent years. And for as, as upsetting as that might have been to see in print, it was nice to see that somebody's finally admitting it. And at the same time, he said that, you know, he had a six-week plan in place for Fultz and, and what he thought was going to, you know, take six weeks to rebuild a shot. He said in week two, they were already working back into, you know, doing a shot with a jump and it was farther ahead of schedule than expected. Um, it kind of brings up the question of whether or not Fultz is going to be playing in summer league. It was something that the media has asked of Brett Brown uh, a few times. And I think at this point, it's pretty safe to say that if Fultz is improving his shot, if Hanlon has worked his magic once again, and you're in a situation where Markel Fultz is building confidence in his jump shot again, not only does that change the dynamic of the team, not only does that make him incredibly value for this valuable for this team, but to me, the the reintegration of him into the team isn't as important as rebuilding that shot. And if that means that he misses a meaningless summer league, I'm fine with it. As long as when training camp comes around and the NBA preseason starts, if he's got that shot back, it doesn't matter if he didn't play in the Orlando league or the, the, um, the Phoenix league or the Utah jazz league. Like I don't care about my that. expectation is that people are going to go absolutely insane. If he doesn't appear in a summer league game, right? Is, is yeah, that they, fair to they say? probably will. And it's stupid. Like to me, you can you can be upset about certain things, but like the summer league to me is is an absolute waste for the most part. I mean, the summer league is kind of where you go out and it's a dog and pony show that everybody goes out and they put their their best first round prospects out. Um, you might see your your second round picks go out and get some minutes, and like there's something fun about that. So like if you wanted to see what Zaire Smith is, if you wanted to get into the debate that Kyle and I had about you know can Zaire Smith actually shoot threes? Um, he hit 45 percent on only 40 attempts in his freshman year in college. Like, you know, if I guess if you want to settle debates like that and you want to see like how he's going to fit into the offense and, and you want to see how Shamit's going to fit into the offense, like fine. Okay. You know, summer league's fine. Um, teams like the Celtics in the past, even last year, you know, Jalen Brown, who was, uh, you know, in, going into his second year in the NBA, he was a guy who at least had seemed like a somewhat established player. They wanted to get him minutes. They wanted to see how he would fit in. And, you know, somebody who's spent a year in the league, uh, who ends up playing against, you know, a bunch of rookies and kids who are just trying to get their bearings about them in the NBA, um, those guys should should simply just stand out in a class of their own. And like in Jalen Brown's case, he did. For Fultz, like what th- there's there's such little uh, positivity that can come from it. I mean, if you yeah, send him the out there, there, I mean, yeah, there, let the there's kids stay in the gym, redevelop the shot. I love that somebody admitted that that's what was finally going on. You know, I think that that's important. Let's just call it what it is. And if if he needs an extra month to, to kind of work on that and refine it and solidify it, then so be it. I don't need to see him go run around on ESPN for 20 minutes so we can analyze the four shots that he took. I mean, what, what good is that? So what's going to be the best thing for him? And I think that that's really what it comes down to. Now, I have a question for you. Uh, have, you ever had the, have you ever had the yips in like anything in life? 
Um, like, have you ever just been like driving down the road and you're like, what if I, I just have like a muscle twitch and like I drive into a median or like something crazy like that? Wow. Wow. Like really dark. Have you ever had like, like a dark really fast? Have you ever had like just like a, I, I, can't, I don't think I can do this routine thing that I've done my entire life. Have you ever had a skill kind of disappear on you before? Because nobody's ever really seen this with basketball and baseball. It happens all the time and there are plenty of famous famous cases of it and uh, some guys get over it and some guys don't but like have you ever had an issue yeah i i guess like one was um when i was studying in germany um there God, I, you're I mean, like, so much more cultured than i am so when i was when i was over studying in germany there was a um like if you speak languages like typically people like to say that you can mix up words um and it's it's really common and for me it, it never really has been um but there, there was like I, I don't know. This really isn't the yips, but it's it's just like stupidly switching something in your head. So in German, there are two words that are really similar. One is Kirche and one is Kirche. Kirche means cherries, and Kirche means church. And I remember like trying to figure out like where's the Catholic church, and like obviously Catholic church is Germany. Like there there are not many, but I was in Berlin, so you can find one. And I was like walking the streets and I was trying to ask somebody, like, do they know where the Catholic church was? Die Katholische Kirche. And I was saying, Die Katholische Kirche. So does anybody know where the Catholic cherries are? And uh, like I was getting some weird looks and I couldn't figure out why. And then I'm, I'm like sitting there and I like start repeating the question to myself like six, seven times. I'm like, Katholische Kirche. And like, I'm like, oh my God, I've been saying cherries, not church. Oh, oh God. Oh God, no. Um, and there was like, uh, there was another night that it was a, a very late night in Berlin. It was like two in the morning. We were trying to catch a subway to get back to, uh, to our respective houses, uh, went with a, a group from Westchester and we ran in, we, we decided that we hadn't had a group picture at the Brandenburg gate yet. And we had like two days left. So we decided that like after a night out, we were going to go try to get a picture at the Brandenburg gate. And there's like, it's the one time in Germany that there were no German speakers anywhere and I hear like out, out of out of like a distance, I hear something that sounds like Italian. And I had taken some Italian in college, but it had been a while. And uh, I, I got back on that that horse, man. I, I remembered pretty quickly how to speak some Italian and we got a picture taken. But uh, then I, I started, you know, second guessing myself and the way that I phrased my question in Italian. Like, was I rude? Was I was I using the proper register? Was I speaking to the person formally as I should have? So. I don't know if those are yips, but those are certainly like the other moments that you kind of look back on. You're just like, man, that, that was, that was not my best, not Uh, my best effort. How about you? You have the yips? Yeah, I actually, I do. I've, I've coached baseball. Uh, that's another thing that I've done in my, in my lifetime and I can throw baseball pretty well, uh, from, from different distances. I can throw it off a pitcher's mound. I can throw it from the outfield. I can throw it across the infield. Decent arm still, um, if you put an L screen in front of me, like, you know, like uh, the screen that goes in front where you throw batting practice. Yeah. If I stand behind an L screen and I'm looking at a target that's even 20, 30 feet away, I cannot throw a baseball from behind an L screen. So thus really? I cannot throw batting practice. It's actually much harder to throw batting practice than you would think, but most guys are decent at it uh, or at least can be somewhat effective. And I can't do it. I will throw a ball that either goes like up and in towards the batter, and then the next one I'll hold onto the ball too long and I'll drive it into the ground to the point where I don't even try anymore. Like I just wow. I, I, I'm like forget it. So yeah, like when I if you remove the L screen and I throw it, no problem. Put the screen there. I can't do it. It's just like this mental block that I can't get over. And so 
it's, it's not like you're wearing an eye patch. Like what? Yeah, it's it's just it's really strange. It's the weirdest thing, and, and a lot of guys actually struggle with it. I, I've talked to some other coaches that are like, it's it's kind of weird. I sort of go through the same thing. You start feeling the seams of the ball in your hand, and then you it's like just the release point changes every time, and that's actually what a lot of baseball players go through. Like Chuck Knobloch, the, the Yankees and Twins second baseman, he actually had the problem when he was with the Yankees. He couldn't throw the baseball from second to first base, and it was the same thing. Like everything was just kind of like um, overly sensitive, Like and he could feel the, the seams in the ball. He would just think about it. He could throw it from other places on the field, but he just couldn't do it from second base. It was the craziest thing. And um, so I think that really that's what's kind of gotten into Markel Fultz. I mean, it is the same. It's the same concept. The guy's thinking through it. Everything is, is hyper-analyzed. And it, it what became a nat- what was a natural movement for him is something that has become completely mechanical and forced. And, and I think that that was the issue that he went through last year. And it's, it's just nice to hear, yo, this is the problem, and, and we're working on how to fix it. And, and hopefully it gets fixed because the kid's 20 years old. He has a ton of talent, and I think it would be insane to check out, him on, uh, check out on him at this point. Are you left-handed or right-handed? Uh, both. Actually, I, I eat and, and uh, write with my left hand, but I throw a ball, and I guess I'm dominant with my right hand and everything else. I was going to say, because uh, you could have put in for that uh, left-handed yeah. bullpen arm. Yeah, that would have been when nice. When the, uh, yeah. the Phillies put that out there. Um, you did a post about the uh, the Eagles Super Bowl ring and party. Uh, was there anything, I guess, that, that came out of that that you found surprising or, or was heartwarming to you? Not really. I just, I'm still in the mood where everything about that game and the aftermath of it, I'm not over it yet. I'm, I'm still fully embracing every development, every story that comes from that. Really? Yeah. Are you, are you over no. it? No. Yeah. No, I'm I'm I've been well past it. I I was like in a weird I was in a weird spot like immediately after the game like it felt great and I wasn't looking forward to the next season, but I think for a long time it was hard for me to kind of wrap my mind around the fact that they actually won the Super Bowl. And I, I like I, I guess at this point, you know, we went through a, a Flyers playoff series, we went through two uh f- two Sixers playoff series. I kind of look like now I'm in World Cup fever mode and it, you know, I I don't care at all about the Eagles right now. So like when I see stories like this pop up, I'm like, all right, well that's cool. And it's cool that Meek Mill performed at their at their after party. Like I think that's neat, and it's cool. It's to definitely see, like, time to retire dreams and nightmares, though. It, yeah, it, that that song. I love the song. I'll always link it to the Eagles winning the Super Bowl. Let's move on from that song. Yeah. Um. So I I don't know. Like when that kind of stuff pops up, like it it's not all that exciting to me. Like I think it's fine. And like when posts go up on the site, I'm like, all right, this is fine. And when Lane Johnson goes and mouths off about the Patriots, I'm like, all right, well that's fine. Like that's cool. But it's not like it's not something where I'm like still living in in shock. Now, I say all this and there was the video that came out. It was on Facebook like a week ago, I think, when they sat down. It was uh, Ron Jaworski and Brian Baldinger sat down with uh, Doug Peterson to break down like Philly Philly. And it was the first time that I'd seen that video. I think it was new. I think you you wrote it up for the site. Um, And and like that to me is the more exciting thing. Like, I don't care all that much about you know, any of the personal anecdotes that come out at this point, like if Jalen Mills runs around and like dyes his hair red and like starts cursing about the Patriots, like that'll be funny. But like, I I don't care all that much. But when, when you go back and, and like, it's another way to see an insider's view into what Philly Philly was or, you know, uh, decisions that resulted in, in big plays or whatever. Like, I think that's, that's kind of where I live in, in being excited. And and I kind of get those feelings back about, you know, what it was like to, to feel, what it was like to win a Super Bowl for the first time in, in our lifetimes in franchise history. So like that to me is is more exciting than finding out, you know, what the centerpieces were or if somebody's trashing the Patriots again. 
I mean, that stuff to me is, is kind of irrelevant. I know that there are people that eat that stuff up and they love it, and I'm not judging them. It's just it's not how I roll. You know what the cheapest thing is on Twitter right now when writers What's say, that? like, the Eagles won the Super Bowl, and it just gets, like, Ugh. 300 retweets or in, like, yep. 1,000 likes, and you go, okay. Like, I'm over that. Like, I'm yep. over, like, the, you know, just the Eagles were good last season. Tweet, tweet, tweet. And, like, as far as football goes, like, I'm absolutely ready for the season. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think they're going to be very good. Um, love the Eagles. It's it's thing that I follow very intently. Um, I will say this. I didn't have the same uh, – I didn't have the same – fanaticism I, I didn't look at the draft the same way that I usually do usually I, I'm all in on the draft know the prospects get all worked up over it and this year I just kind of went eh you know like whatever I, I didn't have that same edge that I usually I usually have same yeah. thing with like mini camp like I don't I don't care about the third string offensive guard and what he did in a in an individual drill you know in the middle of May yep. like I, that stuff I I just I don't have an appetite for that but I'm, I'm definitely working my way back to being ready to go for this season and, and really just kind of taking it all in again because I think it has a chance to be another special season, and I'll be ready for it when it, when it kicks off. But I don't have that same, like, I don't know, that same buildup that I've had in, in past years, which is kind of strange because I it's thought cause that— because the hunger is— the hunger's kind of yeah, gone. Yeah, but when the Phillies won in 08, I came back in like 09, and I'm like, let's go. You got to do it again. You got to prove it. You got to go back to back. You got to solidify yourself as one, as one of the best teams in the history of the game. And I, yeah. And, and I think that the Eagles, like in football especially, it's you go back to back, it's a different story. Like it elevates you into a different realm. And the quarterback wasn't on the field when, when they won it last year, the starting quarterback. There are so many different angles to this that I think that as the season progresses, we'll say, like, it's actually better than the first time. But I, I just don't have that same edge going in right now. So, I, I, I like, to go back to your Phillies comparison, I guess, like, I it, I think I can can kind of associate, you know, similar feelings, I guess. But I, I guess the way that I would look at it is maybe a little bit differently. So, that 08 Phillies team, right, they were lucky that they had to play the Rays. And that Rays team was okay. Um, I think like if a different team gets through, like, I, I don't know if that series ends in five games. I think we kind of knew that that Phillies team wasn't the most talented. We knew that they had a, a pretty solid lineup. We knew that they had, you know, at least one really good pitcher, but we knew that the team could be improved upon that Eagles team from last year. You know, we said throughout the year that, you know, the, the team got, I guess, lucky in a sense that Green Bay lost Aaron Rodgers for a long part of the season. There were injuries that had kind of popped up. In starting quarterbacks, you know, even Minnesota, who ended up, you know, finding a lot more success, I think, with Case Keenum than they would have found with Sam Bradford. You know, when when you kind of look at the way that things were breaking the Eagles way, it felt like, OK, well, maybe this team that isn't that great is going to be able to take advantage and, and like go to the Super Bowl. But it, it became really clear late in that playoff run that this wasn't just a lucky team. It, it They really were the best team in football. And when you go toe to toe with a Tom Brady that goes out and throws over 500 yards in a Super Bowl and like guts your defense, but you're able to go out there with your backup quarterback and just, you know, win the freaking game. Like, I, I think that there's a little bit of a difference. Like, I would look at that Eagles team and say they were a much better team than comparatively that 08 Phillies team was, you know, to the rest of baseball. And so, like, I don't know if there's a way to really improve the Eagles to, like, get them to that next level the same way that the Phillies were able to do that by virtue of, you know, acquiring Cliff Lee and then eventually getting Roy Halladay and, you know, letting Jason Worth go and trying to bring in, like, a Raul Abanez and, like, kind of go through, like, the Hunter Pensiers and everything. Like, I 
I don't know if there's a way to kind of take this thing next level. I mean, yeah, like what else Car- is there to do? You lost your offensive tackle, your middle linebacker, your starting quarterback, one of your best offensive weapons, and you still beat the, the Patriots. best. You beat the Patriots, yeah. So it's yeah, like, so- what else is there left to do when you know the way Phillies beat the Rays? And I guess in 2009, it became apparent that it w- you get to the New York Yankees, it was like the same idea. Like they have a chance to beat the New York Yankees, and had they done that think that whole era would have been looked at a little bit differently and I think that maybe that's you're, you're right I mean maybe it did have something to do with the opponent and that it was a, a kind of a nondescript Tampa Bay team yeah so like I don't know like maybe like when you look back at that like they lose in 09 to the Yankees and it's like okay we know that we're better we know that we were a better team all we have to do is go out and acquire one more pitcher or like go out and acquire like one more big bat and then we'll come back and we'll we'll take the Yankees down and we'll get our dynasty, you know, back in order, right? And so I think there was a certain hunger with that, especially because it was the Yankees that that kind of dethroned you. And I think in this case, like if if the Eagles were to like go back to the Super Bowl and, and God forbid like lose to say a a retooled Patriots team or, you know, pick a team in the AFC, like pick the the Steelers or whatever. And then you say, Okay, well, we can rebound from this. You just have to tweak the roster a little bit. That hunger will be there. Um but yeah, I, I've I've never been somebody to get up for the mini camps for um, voluntary OTAs. I, I just don't get it. And even in training camp, I have a very specific policy to not follow Eagles beat writers because I don't care about the play by play. And I know that there are people who do, but I don't need to listen to or to to read like uh, McLean and Les Bowen and Elliot Shore Parks all you know at the same time saying uh, Aguilar dropped a ball or. Oh, interesting, interesting defensive play there by, you know, insert undrafted free agent uh, who probably won't make the team here or um, he's, he's uh, like flashing. Nate, <laughs> Nate Sudfeld yeah. showing showing flashes of, you know, a potential stud quarterback. Like, I don't need that. Like Studfeld can go out. See that stud Feld. Studfeld yeah. can go out and like have a great training camp and, and like that's fine. And ultimately, like it's not going to matter. Like nobody cares. Because if you ever end up having to go to Nate Sudfeld, it means that, like, Wentz is really screwed and Foles somehow got himself, like, into an accident. Like, the, the, I, I don't care. I don't need it every every day. And I don't need it for however many hours. And I don't need all of these beat writers because they just send, like, they saturate the market with beat writers. I, I don't need to follow these guys yeah, and the see the same really play-by-play. To, the only thing you need to check for is, did anybody get hurt? Did, yeah, did we get through fair. this practice and did anybody get hurt? And I think that that's really the only the only thing that really matters when you when you look at training camp in terms of what the fans are going to process from beat writers on Twitter. Yep. Um, I guess the last thing before we go, um, the Radio Wars post that went up uh, on Friday. So Mike Mizzanelli got into it with his uh, his producer, Tyrone Johnson, and um, there were a lot of theories going back and forth, and we've never been able to necessarily nail down what the problem was. But Mizzanelli definitely drops an F-bomb at Tyrone at one point, and you can see Tyrone lip um, you know, saying, it's not my fault. Then eventually somebody uh, kind of presses Mike on it, I think about 45 minutes into the show, about, you know, you guys know you were on video, and like, I can't believe you guys, uh, like especially Mike, I can't believe that you know you let that happen. Tyrone would whoop you. And it became this whole thing. And then Mizzanelli kind of goes into this like half-hearted apology where he says uh, he didn't realize that they were on the air. And Tyrone's like, well, how do you how do you not know we're on the air? The music dropped. Like, you started this when the music dropped. Like, of course we were on the air. 
Ms. Lynn's like, well, I, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's no, no, no way. There's no way to know that. There's no, there's no way to know that, that we're on the air. Like, I don't, I don't know that. And Tyrone's like, dude, like, it's been the same way for two months. And there's just like a moment where Ad, uh, Natalie Eganoff, uh just rolls her eyes, kind of feeling, uh, I guess, like most people would in that situation. And uh, it was just weird. I mean, like, good for Tyrone kind of standing up to him, but it was just a very strange way to start a show. And it's almost as if those guys forgot that there's a camera. Like, I don't blame Tyrone in that situation. Like, um, but like, Mizzanelli needs to know better, right? Like, you're a, you're a pro in this thing. You have a reputation as being a hothead and having punched a producer in the past and gotten fired from WIP. Um, like, I, I don't, I don't know. Like, uh, he seems like a real joy to work with. Yeah. Uh, you know, a real uh, delight, a, a peach, if you will. I mean, he may be, I think that sometimes in this city, we get caught up with these guys and, and as personalities and, and what they're like and how they, they seem on air. And we hear a lot of stories that kind of suggest that some of these guys aren't, aren't the best. And then you hear some stories that say, oh, wow, he's a, he's a great guy. And I think that that's all fine and well, if I'm Mike Missanelli though, that that can't happen when you consider what the perception is of Mike Missanelli. Uh, I just feel like it happens all the time. It, it's it, every six months there's a thing with Mike Missanelli where he there's a dust up or a, an incident, and it's just like, come on, dude. Like, it, is I don't know if it's and I've never met Mike Missanelli, and I I wouldn't. I'm not trying to attack him here or anything like that. I just I don't understand how you can be this successful in this industry and time and time again, by all accounts, people say like he's extremely difficult to work with. He is very unfriendly. He clearly we've seen, and it's been documented over the years. He's had dustups with people that are on his show. So it's just, I mean, he like trashed, he trashed marks when marks uh, left as his producer. He's certainly gone to that mat a few times, like taking um, swipes at Jason Martinez, who left to go do the midday show with Harry Mays. Like, and that's the other thing too. Like I, I, I feel like there should be a sense of pride in when your producer goes on to host their own show. And it always just feels like it's this petty thing. And like, by all accounts, it sounds like he might be losing in the, in the ratings right now to uh, his former producer, John Marks and Ike Reese, who, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, I, I guess I don't want to trash anybody either, but like if you're losing to a show that has Ike Reese, as the mid as the uh the drive time show i don't know what to tell you man because like ike reese to me might be a, a good a good personality for the eagles i used to enjoy him on yeah, the post game shows the but like yeah, he's think- a very good football guy but he knows nothing about any of the other sports his opinions on the sixers are infuriating he knows nothing about hockey and his baseball takes like i don't know if he even has any and i feel he's like a, i think he's a reds fan I'm pretty sure he's really? a Cincinnati Reds fan. And yeah, I, I feel up. like Marks has to carry that show, which is fine. Like, he certainly got himself set up so that, you know, if the moment ever became right for him to be able to host a drive time show, like, remember, he was hosting Mornings with Gargano. That was a, a kind of painful listen. Um, he moved on to go do the nights at WIP, but I think he probably had heard from the industry insiders that, like, there was a chance that Carlin was going to be moved. And he was opportunistic, and I don't blame him at all. Like, he paid his dues, it would seem, in this market. Um, and, and by all accounts, it sounds like he's currently winning in this, uh, this radio war in the afternoon. And like, that's got to rub Mike the wrong way. And I, I guess like the one thing that's come out since is, you know, I guess Brett Brown and maybe Zaire Smith had been on Gargano's show in the morning on the fanatic. Uh, Brett Brown was on with Marks and Reese at two o'clock, um, on WIP and Mizzanelli got nobody. And I, I think that that is at least what the 
the um, most popular fan theory right now is for why there was this blow up. And when Tyrone said, like, it's not my fault. And he's like, you have no reason to be mad at me. And Mizzanelli said, well, based on what's happened at the station today, I think you have you would agree I have a right to be angry. It, it seems like that might be the most logical explanation for this. And if that's the case, like, I'm sorry, you know, maybe it is your producer's responsibility to try to bring in the talent and get them on the show. But you make probably the highest salary of anybody at that station. You might make the highest salary uh, for anybody who's in the Philadelphia radio market for sports talk radio. At some point, you've got to kind of throw your weight around as well and try to go out and acquire, you know, a guest. Yeah, don't you get... check in at 12 o'clock and say, yo, who do we have? Yeah, Oh, exactly. nobody? Okay, well, I'm, I'm Mike Missinelli. Let's make sure that we go get someone. I mean, I mean, that's what I would think. But yeah. apparently, apparently we're just dumb, yeah. Bob. Apparently, you know... For us not being in that uh, industry, you know, that, that yeah, would so be... podcast peons. It's, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it's too much common sense. I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but whatever. I, I guess that's just the way that it goes. You, you can just yell and belittle, I guess, your, uh, your producer, and you can kind of go back and forth. I was, I was very happy to see that Tyrone did not accept that, uh, that half-hearted apology. I thought that was kind of humorous, but, you know, here we are. Um, anything else on the way out? No, uh, Phillies have a chance this this week against a, a stacked Yankees team, fifty and twenty five. Yankees team uh, starting pitching, starting pitching has to carry the Phillies through this series. The Yankees bullpen is uh, outstanding and they can hit. And uh, if the Phillies want to win this series, uh, they're going to need to continue to get the pitching that they've gotten from their starters. I think any time that a uh, a Phillies reliever is able to get through uh, Judge and Stanton, they uh, should get a. Uh, a pass for the next three weeks. Yeah. If you can get through that without any kind of damage and intentional walks don't count in that situation, by the way, um, then I think they should get a, a nice golden star and maybe a, a, a jar of coconut oil courtesy <laughs> of uh, King coconut, yeah. Gabe Kapler. That'd be nice. My man. Yeah. So uh, we didn't even get to the, the, the one argument that I had for baseball and why it, it could succeed. And that's uh, sports gambling um, real quick, I guess, before we go, Kyle and I have kind of talked about this before, but um do you see a scenario where microtransactions become the thing that saved baseball? Being able to say, like, going into an at-bat that you think a guy is going to strike out versus fly out versus line out, um, or even getting down to the most micro sense where um, Vince Velasquez is on the mound and you get to predict that, like, he's going to throw an off-speed pitch or he's going to throw a fastball. Like, do you think we're ever going to see that, and do you think that that's something that could bring fans back into the sport of baseball uh, in play gambling on the illegal market is, is already, it already exists. Um, it depends what service you use. You can do things like, will there be a run scored in this inning? Who will win a specific inning? Um, in terms of outcomes of actual pitches and at bats, uh, that to me, I have not seen that yet. I do think we're headed that way. I do think the technology is trending in the way that that'll become available. Uh, it exists in football. You know, what's the result of this next play? Will it be run pass, incomplete, complete, touchdown? What's the next score of the game? Uh, touchdown, field goal, things like that. Uh, I do think that that's definitely going to help baseball. I think it's going to help all sports, to be honest with you. And I do think that's why these leagues, whether they come out and say it or not, um, whatever their their outward opinion of sports gambling is, it's going to help all leagues in terms of ratings, in terms of interest. I do think it's going to have a substantial impact on baseball. I think that the way that the game is paced, it actually lends itself to in-play, pitch-by-pitch, bat-by-bat gambling. Uh, I definitely think it's going to have a positive impact. However, in terms of baseball getting back to where it's one of the you – know, I guess nobody's going to touch the NFL. And I don't know that baseball needs to beat the NBA, but in terms of just getting baseball to a healthier place, there are things that baseball is going to have to do within the, within the sport 
outside of gambling in order to make sure it gets back to where they want it to be. Um, I don't want to have this conversation. I love baseball. Like, I really do. Uh, I don't think it's a completely broken game, but there are things that about it that are just, it's tough. You know, we live in an era now where we can't look at our cell, or, you know, we look at our cell phones every, every 90 seconds because we have no attention span, and then you ask somebody to sit down for three and a half hours and take in a baseball game, and that's a, that's a tough ask right now. Uh, they, they've got to shorten the games. They've got to get it to, like, two hours, 45 minutes. Um, and there are d- different theories and suggestions on how you might do that. But is, in terms of just your question, yeah, I think gambling is going to have a big impact on it. All right. Um, real quick, I guess, before we head out, I've said that like six times now. Uh, uh, big congratulations, felicidades, felicitaciones to uh, Hismuel Valentin, who I guess plays for the Phillies, whose name I don't recognize. Uh, they just had a baby. So uh, he's now a dad. Yeah. He just put that on Instagram uh, a few hours ago. So uh, congratulations to him. That's very exciting. Um, I guess the the last thing today is uh, for those who are so interested, which I don't know if you are, Bob, but the World Cup today, um, there are four matches that are taking part or taking place. Um, we're in a spot now where it's not just a single game at a time. We're in match day three. So it's the third match, third and final match of uh, group play. So group A, I think, plays at 10 a.m. Saudi Arabia and Egypt on either Fox or FS1 and then Uruguay and Russia on the other network. And then at uh, 2 o'clock, the much more interesting matchups, Portugal versus Iran at 2, and Spain against Morocco at 2 as well. So, um, I don't know. If you haven't gotten into the World Cup yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. If you're listening to this uh, and you're interested in learning more about the World Cup, uh, go check out Crossing Broad FC. Phil Kydell and I did a preview show a few weeks or a week or so ago, um, previewing all of these teams. We did a recap after match day one. Uh, we'll be putting out an episode probably either today or tomorrow or at the latest Wednesday, recapping match day two, and then one this weekend recapping uh, the final round here, match day three, before we get into the knockout stage. Bob, have you watched any World Cup, and will you be watching any going forward? Uh, I'm into it. Like I, I respect the event. I can't tell you that I am rooting for a particular team or have a deep interest in it, but uh, I think it's a cool event. It's something that's been on my television the last uh, couple weeks, and so I don't know. I'll have my eye on it, but I don't... If I told you I cared or knew anything about it, I'd be lying. What's your ethnicity? Um, half German and half Irish. Well, luckily for you, you can root for Germany. Yeah, I don't know. If... I know they had their uh, they they survived the other day, kept themselves alive. <sighs> that was that was by the way one of the most beautiful goals I've ever seen. One of the best executed set plays off of a set piece. Tony Kroos off to Marco Royce, who deadens the ball. Kroos puts it in. Ah, oh, that was. Absolutely no idea what you just said, but I'm sure it was gorgeous. There were so many. uh, I mean, look, this World Cup, there have been no 0-0 finishes, uh, which is awesome, especially for the people that say there's no scoring in soccer. I mean, it's limited scoring, but there haven't been any of those 0-0 shutouts. Uh, And there have been a ton, a ton of goals scored in stoppage time. That's, uh, you know, when you get to 90 minutes and then they start adding on the extra time. So uh, including that Tony Crow's goal. So anyway... Uh, go check out the shows on the Crossing Rod Podcast Network, including Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast with Bob and Anthony. That'll be going out tomorrow. I think you guys are recording, what, tonight after the Yankees game? As usual, yeah, a little midnight recording session. So uh, that'll be out tomorrow, so make sure you go check out Crossed Up. Uh, we will have probably a snow the goalie, I think, on Thursday, Anthony and I are planning uh, to recap the uh, Flyers' uh, uh, most recent NHL draft uh, that happened over the weekend. Uh, we'll be putting out probably one or two episodes of Crossing Broad FC, recapping stuff with the World Cup. Kevin Kincaid will be back. Thanks, sweet baby Jesus. He's coming home, Bob. He's uh, leaving Europe. He will be back. 
which means a little bit less frantic posting necessitated, uh, <laughs> necessitated, I guess, by virtue of his absence. Did you see the, the will- commenters? They miss Kevin Kincaid. They do. They are ready for his return. Dude, they they like, oh my God, there's some people. I, it's typically the same guy. I mean, it's the same IP address, so it's got to be the same guy. But um, there there have been a couple commenters that have uh, turned on me recently and have been saying, uh, bring back the kinker. There was somebody who uh, wrote an obituary in the comments the other day for, for Kincaid, said, uh, like, gone too soon. So, uh, and then asking we why Kyle fired ye. him. Yeah. We so, uh, you know, here's, here's to Kincaid who's coming back. Thank God he'll be back. Uh, which which will be good. Um, you and I won't have to be on call yeah, quite as much. I need a point guard. I need someone to tell me what to do and when to do it. Yeah, so uh, he'll be back, I guess, Tuesday. So I'm assuming that means that there will be an episode of It's Always Soccer in Philadelphia coming out as well, especially recapping that Sebastian Latou was the uh, the inaugural member of the Ring of Honor down at Talent Energy Stadium. He got inducted over the weekend, so uh, that was exciting. Anyway, uh, for Bob, at BW Crossing Broad on Twitter, Uh, I'm Russ at Joy on Broad. We will uh, talk to you again on Wednesday.